Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and welcome to Retina Synthesis. Today, I'm pleased to have us have with us Professor Glenn Yu of the University of California Davis Health System. Glenn, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks for the invitation. So Glenn's done some pioneering work on superchoroidal gene therapy, and uh, but today we're going to extend his expertise into talking about general safety considerations about gene therapy for retinal disease. So we know that the promise is fantastic for both replacement therapy, such as in retinal degenerations and in uh, product, uh, therapeutic product production, such as in macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy, multiple modes of administration, supercoroidal, intravitreal, subretinal. What do you think the risks and benefits of these procedures are? Well, I think um, when we're talking about gene therapy, um, by definition, we're delivering a gene, and that could be done by a viral vector, or it could be a synthetic vector. And most of the work right now is dealing with viral vector. So the question you have is, what are the the benefits and risks. And I think the benefits are obvious. In most of the cases, if they're inherited retinal diseases, they are missing a working copy of a gene, and we use a viral vector delivering the uh, a working copy of the gene. And so that's the only therapy available. There's no other way to fix this, these diseases. And so that's a, a major benefit. For more complex diseases like AMD, um, Obviously, the goal is to overcome the challenge of repeated intraocular injections of these anti-VEGF or other anti-angiogenesis agents. Um, so we're overcoming the need for repeat injection by essentially, I tell patients, we're essentially trying to give a blueprint of the drug into your eye so that your eye can make the drug on its own. So I think in terms of benefits, it's generally relatively simple. It's essentially permanent either replacement of a gene or a biofactory approach to synthesize a copy of a drug um, that would be in perpetuity. The risks, I think, are unclear at this point. There are various aspects of gene therapy that we are not completely sure about. So first of all, uh, inflammation is probably on the top of everyone's mind. Uh, whenever you're delivering a foreign agent, whether it be even a drug, the body will de develop some kind of immune response to it. So the question is not really so much, is there any immune response? Of course, there's going to be an immune response when you're delivering a foreign agent. The question is, how damaging is that immune response? And could it also, A, damage the eye, uh, cause you to lose vision? And then B, could it wear out your therapeutic response? If it, let's say, immune cells damage the cells that are transduced by the AAV, then over time you'll lose that benefit. So I think that that's the, where we really have to worry about the you know, kind of risk and benefit. Now, there are obviously other uh, potential risks besides just inflammation. For example, if you're doing a, uh, a surgical subretinal injection, there are the risks associated with any subretinal injections. Um, and then when you're talking about an uh, intravitreal injection, obviously you have to worry about things like endophthalmitis and other, um, other issues. But I think particularly unique to gene therapy is this question of inflammation. So inflammation varies by route of delivery. Isn't that right? Correct. 
Yeah, so one thing we've learned a lot about um, over the years of many different trials is that injecting an AAV subretinally is a lot less pro-inflammatory than in injecting it into the, intra into the vitreous cavity. The hypothesis, it seems like, is that it has to do with where the virus goes. So the if you remember, the eye itself is an immune-privileged organ. So if you get the AV underneath the retina, between the retina and the RPE, and it's just kind of secluded there, um, it doesn't call, it doesn't trigger much of an immune response because it's not exposed to the immune system. When you inject it into the vitreous cavity, yes, the vitreous cavity itself is immune privileged space, but actually we find that a good amount of that virus will leak into systemic circulation, most likely through the trabecular meshwork. And so it will get into the systemic circulation and more likely than not trigger or expose the immune system to these viruses and trigger an immune response that way. Um, the most interesting is this idea of a supercoidal injection. So as you know, there's an FDA-approved microinjector that's essentially a tiny, short little needle that will get uh, that can inject steroids into the supercortical space between the sclera and the choroid. And so there's been some studies where you can inject uh, AAV into that space, and it actually distributes pretty widely and it looks pretty good. Uh, but Remember, the supercorridor space is technically outside the blood retinal barrier, right? It's beyond the RPE barricade, which is the outer blood retinal barrier. So now you're injecting AV in the eye, but it's outside the blood retinal barrier. And in those studies, at least in non-human primates, so these are in monkeys that we've done, we show that it also causes a little bit of an immune response. Uh, and the interesting thing is that it's not necessarily to the viral particles, but to the transgene. So um, whenever your viral particles make a certain protein, so in our case, we were making green fluorescent protein, which is obviously foreign. But what happens when you do a supercortical injection is that a lot of the viruses get stuck in the sclera. So that sclera is outside the blood retinal barrier and is making tons of these green fluorescent proteins. So the body will naturally build an immune response to green fluorescent protein. So the question obviously is what happens when we go in humans? Those trials are ongoing. So currently, uh, Regenex Bio have a product called the RGX314, uh, which is uh, primarily delivered subretinally in their phase three trials that are ongoing, but they have some exploratory phase two studies where they're injecting that same virus into the supercorridor space. And early data suggests that it's safe. There's not much of a safety signal right there. Uh, there right now, uh, but we don't really know about the long-term effects yet, and it'll be interesting to see. Certainly, they're not delivering, most drugs or gene therapies are delivering human proteins and not like a jellyfish protein like green fluorescent protein in our studies. Um, so what we're showing probably is an exaggeration of what could be a problematic response, but so far, at least that appears safe. Yes, uh, there, there have been multiple phase one trials of supercoroidal gene therapy, and there's been remarkably low levels of inflammation detected. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're smart because they're, because one thing we found out with supercoroidal injection is that the virus um, are very good at distributing widely, but it actually doesn't always go to the posterior pole. And we kind of understand it's like when you'd see a supercoroidal hemorrhage or something like that, 
or suprachoroidal effusions, it tends to be peripheral. You don't have a, you don't, you rarely have a macular suprachoroidal hemorrhage because I think the suprachoroidal space is more open uh, peripherally. And so a lot of the current gene therapy trials that uses suprachoroidal delivery are focusing on more like biofactory techniques. Essentially, the virus just needs to make a protein. The protein can secrete it anywhere. And in fact, that can one can make an argument that, that might be even beneficial to do suprachoroidal because then it doesn't go to the macula where it could, if potentially there's some adverse effects, it will mostly affect your peripheral retina, but it's generating the protein to help treat the macula. Um, so that's why most suprachoroidal gene therapy trials are, are focusing on peripheral diseases or biofactory approaches. So there were, Adverum has had a number of phase two trials, uh, one phase two trial for diabetic macular edema, diabetic retinopathy, ended up with some eyes developing serious eye-threatening hypotony. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, so the Adverum platform is, uh, that's the ADVM022 is the most advanced form, is the one that was given intravitreally. And there was a lot of discussion and concerns when the phase two infinity study for diabetic macular edema had a few patients that developed uh, bad inflammation and hypotony uh, that led to early termination of the study. I don't really think of it. So the question I think is, is it safe? Uh, now, they did not see this in the AMD study. So um, the question is, is there a difference? Like, is it that the diabetic patients are younger? Um, are diabetic patients have a uh, um, impaired uh, blood retinal barrier uh, to begin with because of the diabetes? Um, we don't really know. Uh, but we do know that a lot of it is dose dependent. So if you inject a large volume of AAV, you can probably inject it anywhere and will get in inflammation if you inject high enough a dose. Um, so currently, the Advarian program has advanced to phase three for AM, or to, to late to a, actually a, a phase two, um, 2B for the um, uh, AMD study. And that so far looks promising because right now I think that the team has become very, very vigilant about inflammation. Um, they have multiple um, arms that involve different types of steroid prophylaxis, varying from intravitreal steroids to systemic steroids to topical, um, plus or minus topical steroids. And so I think that the key is not necessarily saying it's safe or unsafe, but to be able to manage um, the, um, what the potential complications are. One of the other things that was brought up was why are those eyes getting hypotony? Um, now, just remember that a lot of these uh, gene therapies, when you're injected, um, they are, the viral particle carries the copy of the gene, but the gene has to be driven by a promoter that determines what cells make it. And pretty much every gene therapy, almost all gene therapy pro programs currently in late phase clinical trials are using what we call a ubiquitous promoter, like chicken beta, chicken beta actin or CMV. All of these promoters pretty much make the protein any cell that they can get. Um, so when we inject a virus intravitreally, some of those viral particles can get into things like the ciliary body. And the ciliary body could be making this drug or, or will, will be infected by the virus. And there's some hypothesis that that could be causing inflammation to the ciliary body, and then that could explain the hypotony. Um, so I think that there are many mechanisms by which inflammation can be triggered. 
Um, the good thing is that I think many of these gene therapy companies are very aware of the potential of these inflammation. And so they're working very actively to mitigate those, um, those events. And I always, you know, there's some people that are very like, oh, there's inflammation, gene therapy is super dangerous. I think the key is not to be either too uh, unreasonably optimistic, but also not to be overly pessimistic because I think it's an opportunity for us to learn. And I think that there are a lot of ways by which we could, if we find the correct method to mitigate these inflammation, I think the gene therapies have a significant potential. Well, there's lots of interest in intravitreal administration. It's office-based and it's a procedure that every retina specialist is quite familiar with. So there is a high level of optimism about this and hope. Uh, there's been at least one uh, company that's come out with another intravitreal uh, gene therapy approach for macular degeneration that appears to have less inflammation. Uh, yeah. Can you comment on that? Yeah, you're probably referring to the 4DMT uh, program. Yes. So the unique thing about this, so this is another company that's also making a gene therapy that is essentially used to treat wet AMD by producing an anti-angiogenic uh, uh, compound. Uh, what's unique about this company is that their product, their AAV, um, is given intravitrally, but was developed in non-human primates. So the original Advarum um, AAV, it's called the AAV27M8 variant. It's a unique variant of AAV that can be given intravitrally. That variant was actually identified using mouse eyes. So standard, if you just take any AAV off the street, a standard AAV cannot be given intravitrally because it doesn't penetrate into the retina. It turns out the ILM barrier kind of blocks viral particles from getting sucked into the retina. So they, you have to do something called directed evolution. Essentially, you inject viruses, mutate a whole bunch of viruses, inject it into an eye, and hope that one of those viral particles will get some mutation that will let it penetrate into the retina. And then you take that virus, mutate it again, make a whole bunch of different ones, inject it into another animal eye, and then you keep doing this rounds and rounds until you select for the viral particle that's really, really good at getting into the retina from the vitreous cavity. So this is called directed evolution. And the AAV27M8 from Advarum was direct was uh, designed in mice. So it penetrates very well into mouse eyes, but it actually doesn't penetrate into primate eyes as readily. Um, so that that all of that has been published. And so that could explain why Advarum might have to go with slightly higher doses in order to achieve the same beneficial um, level of benefit. So the, the argument from 4DMT is that their viral particles, which is called the R100 variant, uh, was uh, the directed evolution was done in non-human primates so that theoretically it would penetrate and work better inside primate eyes. Um, as a just as a note, though, I don't think a lot of that information has been published. I think a lot of that is proprietary, so we don't know too much about the details of how its efficacy is as compared to the 7M8 variant. But at least in early clinical trials, 4DMT is showing that they can achieve similar beneficial effect with a slightly with a with a lower dose of the AAV. So that brings a little bit of optimism that, hey, if you can get a viral particles that can get through into the retina more readily, 
you can just give a smaller dose that doesn't cause inflammation or cause less inflammation. Um, and those studies are very promising, although they are earlier phase, much earlier. Um, so we're still waiting to see what results come out of those studies. Moving beyond inflammation, uh, in the subretinal gene therapy with RGX314, pigmentary disturbances were noted. Can you comment on those? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, the pigmentary disturbance actually were reported uh, from the from the OG of gene therapy studies, which is the Luxterna studies. Um, so Aaron Nagel um, from Southern California, like they've published series of of kids who are or patients who receive Luxterna that in late as as time goes on, they start to develop pigmentary changes that generally follows the geometry of where the bleb was. Wherever they did the injection, where the bleb was, they can see those pigmentary changes. Now, the question is, what exactly is, are these pigmentary changes and are they concerning? Um, I think that right now, very little is known about these pigmentary changes. Um, we do know that they look like that there is RPE uh, atrophy. So it's almost akin to like geographic atrophy. And so I think that um, it, and it's unclear right now whether it's caused by a specific type of virus or is it any virus or, or is it the transgene, the, the protein that's being delivered. Um, the fact that we're observing it across different um, gene therapy studies, which all have different transgenes, suggests that it could be related to just injecting any viral particle into the subretinal space. Um, so the advantage, I think, of the RGX314 program, which is what you were mentioning, is that that is also a biofactory approach. So they don't technically need to inject it into the macula. So a lot of those trials currently involves us injecting outside of the vascular arcades, close to the macula, but not close enough to cause actual vision loss. And to see if we can, uh, if we essentially, if we can just create those blebs outside the uh, outside the macula, um, what are the long-term implications of these pigmentary changes? Is a little bit unknown right now. I think we have to do a lot more work um, across studies to compare to see if the what is associated with the severity of these pigmentary changes and how much vision loss there is. Note that a lot of the early trials, like let's say with Luxterna, a lot of those patients don't have great vision. So, you know, it, it's hard to tell what are the visual uh, effects of these pigmentary changes. But I think it will be more apparent as we start to use gene therapy in uh, milder diseases or patients with better vision to begin with. I think we'll have a better sense of how uh, potentially harmful they could be. One of the advantages of the biofactory approach is sustained delivery of drug. Now we're talking about sustained delivery for the lifetime of the patient. Are you concerned about this? Depends on the disease. Um, I think that, for example, if it's a, uh, obviously if it's a replacement therapy like RP65, um, we want that RP65 to be there forever. So I, I have no concern, or I don't have as much concern since it is a human protein, a functional copy of a human protein. Um, I think the question about anti-VEGF therapies is a little bit more nuanced. Is it good to have anti-VEGF that you can't turn off forever in an eye? Um, I think it varies with the disease. For something like, let's say, diabetic macular edema, um, I don't know about you, but I am more on the line of, I think, 
Diabetic macular edema is a ocular manifestation of a systemic disease. So some patients don't need anti-VEGF forever. Let's say they get a you know, continuous glucose monitor, they get on insulin pump, suddenly their diabetes is under much better control. They don't have very severe DME anymore. So some of those patients, so many of those patients that kind of manage more like a PRN method. Um, and in those cases, I don't know if a permanent anti-VEGF agent um, is particularly good. Um, at least we don't know. We just don't have the long-term data. The second thing is that most diabetic patients tend to be on the younger side. So if you're giving them a gene therapy when they're in their 40s and 50s, they're looking at having this for the next 40 to 50 years. Whereas I think, for example, um, uh, uh, gyroscope has a gene therapy that makes complement factor I. So in, co in contrast to like Cyfovri, where you have to give monthly or every other month injections of a complement inhibitor uh, in an 80 plus year old person that has to come back every other month, a gene therapy that will suppress your complements for the duration of your life, it probably will be only in the next less than 10 to 20 years. So I think the long-term concerns are a little bit less concerning for more older uh, patients with AMD. And then talking about wet AMD, I think giving uh, many of my wet AMD patients, I pretty much tell the patients that they are going to be uh, planning to get anti-VEGF for the rest of their lives anyway. And so in those pa patients, and we have many uh, studies of very long history of patients with wet AMD getting anti-VEGF injections, and we have not seen severe or significant concerns about like chronic VEGF suppression from those studies. So I think that there's a little bit more um, optimism for like older patients with wet AMD um, for this type of study. So to sum up, 10 years from now, do you think that gene therapy will be a standard part of the, the retinal armamentarium? Yeah, I, I think that there's no doubt that gene therapy will take a role, will take an important uh, part of our kind of our treatment paradigm for various diseases. I think how exactly what mode, like intravitreal, subretinal, supracoroidal, or what's the perfect target are, we're, you know, as some, uh, someone I once told me, it's still the first inning. Um, and I think that there's still a lot of refinement that can occur, maybe more specific promoter that can only make the protein in certain cells. Uh, maybe a, uh, 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 we have their the new technologies using viral particles that can evade the immune system. They have been developed that can be more immune silent. Um, and I think that finding maybe the right uh, immunomodulatory or immunosuppressive regimen to go along with the gene therapy, I think all of these will potentially uh, um, make this therapy a lot more feasible. Um, until then, I always joke that uh, gene therapy right now, if it if it's indeed uh, really works as well as it says, but causes all this inflammation, maybe we'll be sending all of our uh, injection patients from retina clinics to the uveitis colleagues uh, across the hall. But I think you, I think it's it's a good joke, but the, the reality is that I think you expressed the, the fact that these infl inflammatory side effects are manageable in general. Generally, they're manageable. And I think that oftentimes, but, you know, I think it's kind of like B of you. If you look at it, um, 
they're not a large number of patients with that side effect, but if the severity, if the side effect severity is high, can be unpredictable and very severe, um, doctors are not going to want to use it. And so I think that right now, I think the key is to really pay attention to these ongoing trials and figure out what what percentage of them are mild, can be treated with some Predforte eye drops, and what percentage are going to cause like this intractable inflammation that cannot be treated even with systemic steroids. Um, hopefully, I think we're more in the early that other as the, the other side where it's milder, uh, but we'll have to wait to see. So Glenn, thanks a lot for a fantastic discussion. Yeah, thanks a lot, Carmen.